Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Check one, check two. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. <laughs> hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. And I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab, and we're talking about loops. 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 Okay. L- loops. Something and nothing, nothing and something, something and nothing, nothing and something. Here's something one for you. I mean, zero is the obvious loop, and its loop shape is part of why zero is zero. Uh, who's this? This is Alex Bellos. And I'm the author of Here's Looking at Euclid. When I was a kid, I used to think, oh, zero, it's just like the hole with nothing in it. But actually, zero was chosen by the Indians as kind of reflecting like the eternal cycles of the faces of heaven. The Romans and the Greeks and the, and the Jews, we didn't have a zero. We just had, you know, start, everything started at one. And one reason why we didn't is that we were kind of afraid of the void. the void. Afraid of the void. What, like well, the... I mean, how would you describe something, something that isn't there? Nothing. There's nothing to say. Is that but... scary somehow? Yeah, it's an emptiness and a nothingness, and it means you're so alone you don't even know where you are. And so this sort of was a psychological barrier to us grasping this zero. But in India, everything and nothing was the same thing. They had this very sort of fluidity and they grasped this idea that nothingness was something. And oddly enough, the way they decided to represent the nothing was they they took a little piece of nothing and they drew a circle around it, which turns the nothing into a something. And it's a loop. And it's a loop. So this idea of eternity and continuity and infinity is actually contained with the numeral for, for zero. I mean, I kind of love the idea that, that actually he is kind of the most mystical, kind of magical, spiritual um, digit of them all. You know, and it's, we use it every day. See. Rolling. Yeah. So here's two of the workhorses. These are like my old. Next up, a story from yeah. reporter Mark Phillips. All right. As you can see here, there's all these containers of tape loops. Okay, so set this up. Who is this guy? His name's William Bazinski. He's a musician who makes this really hard to describe music. He's been doing it for about 30 years, and basically what he does is he takes a little bit of classical music or Muzak, records it onto tape, this was sitting here. I analog this, tape, this might be terrible. and he loops it. Let's see if I can find something from... He cuts the beginning, the end, tapes it together into a circle, threads it through a tape machine, messes with the speeds, and you get something that sounds like this. This little phrase that just repeats over and over and over again. It never changes. You know, loops are everywhere. They're cycles. They're in nature. They're just universal. And if you can find a loop that can repeat without becoming redundant, then you can sort of fall into a different space and time even. Sort of like a bubble of eternity or something. I don't know. 
So that's what that sounds like. Well, in the summer of 2001, I was uh, archiving all these old tape loops, transferring them to digital. And something kind of weird happened. He grabbed this one piece of tape, put it on. And it was this wonderful, grave, very stately loop I'd totally forgotten about. And I set it up and turned on the CD burner and left the control room, went to the kitchen, got some coffee and came back and I started realizing something was changing. I, I looked and I could see that the tape was shredding. The thing to understand about tape is that when you record music onto analog tape, onto a bit of it, that music... What it is, is it's iron oxide powder glued to just a piece of plastic. So the iron powder is actually the music. Yeah. But after 20, 30 years... The glue loses its strength. And the dust falls off. Onto the floor. His music was actually falling on the floor? Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, what's going to happen? And what happened was, in the course of about an hour, the music disintegrated. And you put more loops on, and it kept happening. But the really interesting thing was, while some disintegrated quickly, some slowly, they all sort of had the same pattern. What do you mean? Just listen to this one. So this is one of his loops at the beginning. Okay. And after it went around and around for 20 minutes or so, the dust started to fall off, and then it sounded like this. All the, all the notes are still there, but the tails they're getting shorter. Yeah. And that's what would always happen. The sustains and the decays of the notes seem to fall away, like from the back, moving backwards. Backwards. It gets shorter and shorter. Instead of being held for four seconds, it's held for three seconds. Two seconds. And finally, you just really hear... Like the attacks and the accents. Just the beginnings of the notes. Only the beginnings. Those seem to hold on. At least for a little while. I was thinking, wow, this is like... I'm recording the life and death of a melody. It just made me think of human beings, you know, and how we die. You can really hear the disintegration on this particular loop. I think this was number five. It starts sounding like the rest, like this. But after just 15 minutes, it's basically completely gone. And the tape on this one, it, you know, tape is normally brown. 
right now it's it's clear like scotch tape but the dust is gone and there's a little bit of brown here but now it's just clear oh it's almost all gone This next loop is is a sly one, and you're going to have to wait a bit for its loopiness to kick in. Ready? Born ready. <laughs> Producer Lynn Levy. The smell of a dead whale is, you have to experience to know, to know what it's like. It's like nothing I've ever smelled. This is Craig Smith, uh, professor of oceanography. It really is, yeah, it's really putrid. Back when Craig was a graduate student. This is in 1982. He heard there was a dead whale floating off the coast of San Diego. About a third out of the water with seabirds on it, pecking at it. How big? Around 25 to 30 feet long. So what is that, like a train car? More like a, a size of a small yacht, I guess. Whoa. Big freaking whale. Yeah. And Craig wanted to sink that whale. No one had ever studied what happens when a whale sinks to the seafloor. People just speculated about it. So no one had ever followed it down to the bottom? No one had followed the whale down to the bottom. Huh. Right? So we, we towed the, the carcass out to sea. And they had all these little scraps of steel that they tied to the whale's tail, one at a time. About 2,000 pounds, and... Nothing. It wasn't enough to to sink the whale. Whale kept floating there like a big, smelly balloon. Its belly was all full of... (laughs) Decompositional gases. And the captain of the ship goes, well... I have a big rifle, let's bring that out. So he got out his rifle. And And all the other guys (laughs) in the boat take out their guns. Shooting the whale. Yeah, yeah. This also doesn't work. It doesn't work. It didn't really do anything. But Craig tried again and again, and eventually, not with that whale, but with others, he got to see something so cool. So a whale dies and sinks down into the the dark. And... And then... This incredible cycle begins. Within minutes, scavengers will be at the carcass. Lots of them. How do these little creatures see the whale if it's so dark? They smell it. They smell the whale. Mm -hmm. Within hours, it may well have hundreds of hagfish on it. They're terrifying. These eel-like animals, they have grinding plates instead of teeth, and they burrow into the the carcass. Hundreds, like a hagfish convention. This writhing mass of, of eels. What does that look like? Well, it looks like a like a giant Medusa head. Over the next few days, a bunch of other scavengers show up. Including uh, stone crabs, shrimp, sea scuds, sharks, crustaceans. Huge feeding frenzy. Flesh flying everywhere. Sometimes the hagfish get ticked off and they try to defend their territory. Hagfish have a very interesting ability to produce mucus. Um, you can put a couple of hagfish into a bucket of water and kick it, and they can produce enough mucus to essentially turn the bucket of water into something like gelatin. Wow. 
So it's like a Medusa head in a cloud of mucus. And all that is just the first stage. The mobile scavenger stage. Okay. So what happens after that? Well, after the mobile scavenger stage is the enrichment opportunist stage. At that point... The whale is beginning to look pretty dilapidated. Little bits of whale soft tissue get implanted in the seafloor. And so the ground around the whale becomes like sort of its own little ecosystem, and a bunch of new animals show up. They're worms. Uh, they're wriggly little worms. Just like tons of them. We can, we can get 30 or 40,000 of them per square meter. Sometimes the sediment around a whale fall looks like a lawn of grass, where these worms are just wriggling, sticking up uh, out of the sediment and waving back and forth. What, what, what color are these worms? Do you know? I think they're white. So a field of white worms. Yeah. White grass. It's kind of ghostly. Yeah. And finally... The last stage. Something we call the sulfur-loving stage. At this point, the whale looks like a skeleton just covered with this actually beautiful mat of white bacteria. Um, And it's fluffy and just looks like a polar bear's fur. Covering the bones of the whale? Yeah. Think about a whale skeleton draped in a a polar bear fur coat. Sulfur's coming out of the bones and the bacteria are just clustering around, sucking it up. For years. When you step back and look at it, these dead whales, they become like planets. And you find creatures living on them that you don't find anywhere else. There are now about 55 species that haven't been found in any other habitat, species of animals that only live on whale falls. Does that mean that these creatures, like the whale is their entire world? They don't know anything else? For some of them, yeah. What do they do the rest of the time? I mean, this can't happen that often. Well. That's a good question. It may be that they are living as what we, as fugitive species. In other words, they just drift around, sort of waiting. Can I say hoping? For... And when that happens... They grow quickly, produce hundreds, thousands, maybe even millions of larvae that they then broadcast out into the water column. Then their babies drift around in the darkness, waiting. Until... A few of them find another such habitat tens or maybe even hundreds of kilometers away. And repeat. So altogether, I mean, how long can, can a whale fall last? Well, a whale fall can last. A large whale skeleton, that of a blue large blue whale or a fin whale, can support a community for 50 to 75 years. Wow. Which really astounded us. And how does that compare to the lifespan of the whale? Well, it's probably pretty comparable, actually. Whales live uh, on the order of uh, 50 to 70 years. 
There's something kind of poetic about that, the idea that, you know, for the same amount of time that the whale lived, it's, it's going to support this life. Yeah, it is, it is very appealing. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. Radio Lab will continue in a moment. Dan Sherman from Tarrytown, New York. Radio Lab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org.